Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Pattern Recognition, a show that connects the dots that lead to good business decision making. I'm your host, John Hu, growth equity investor at Norwest Venture Partners and former investment banker Goldman Sachs. So we've spent quite a bit of time covering software broadly, but most of those companies have been horizontal facing in nature, selling into many industries as opposed to within a single vertical. Now, one of my favorite software verticals that I focus on is EdTech as it seeks to generate a double bottom line of both profit and better student outcomes. However, EdTech is a notoriously difficult industry to crack. Whether at the K-12 or the higher ed level, education sales cycles are painfully slow, oftentimes taking years to finalize given the plethora of decision makers and risk aversion of the institutions themselves. And to top it all off, if you're selling into public institutions, one policy change by Congress could wipe away all of the funding that supported your offering. However, if one does crack the EdTech code, one can build an immensely successful business. And that is why I'm very excited to welcome Chip Palsek, the founder and CEO of 2U, to the show today. Since 2U's founding in 2008, Chip and his team have stood as pioneers in higher ed, betting that the future of university is online. And they did so with a disruptive business model, deciding to innovate beyond just online delivery and investing their own cash upfront on all program and implementation costs, and instead negotiating revenue share agreements with future student enrollments. So it's no surprise that the company has now empowered tens of thousands of graduates at institutions ranging from Harvard to Yale to UNC, while simultaneously building a billion dollar business that's now seen as the darling of the public ed tech companies. So in today's podcast, Chip and I discuss how to go about revolutionizing a risk-averse and bureaucracy-laden industry by innovating both in business and delivery model. Chip and I also dig into the risks inherent in edtech businesses and how Chip thinks about the future of higher ed outcomes. Now, lastly, Chip shares the patterns he sees across successful public companies. So why don't we get started? Hey, Chip, how's it going? Good, John. How are you? Doing fantastic. So why don't we start with your career background up until the founding of 2U? So first of all, I'm a first-generation college graduate. So I grew up in South Florida with incredible parents, but I got a Pell Grant to go to George Washington University in Washington, D.C. When I got there, I had not only sort of only been out of Florida a couple times in my life, but had never seen snow. And I used that as a metaphor to talk about how powerful the experience was for me. So Getting to a great school like GW really changed my life. I met incredible people. I got great internships. I met my wife sophomore year. We're together 29 years later, very happily married. So it couldn't have had a bigger impact on my life. And then I got bit by the entrepreneurial bug. So I was working for a U.S. senator at the time as her assistant scheduler, which you learn is both the worst job on the Hill because basically the scheduler takes all the yeses for the senator. And so... I did all the no's. So if somebody was going to meet with the senator, the scheduler handled it. And you learn much later in life that getting good at saying no and not pissing people off is pretty valuable. But I did that for a year and then started a company and ran that company for a decade. And unfortunately, that company ultimately didn't return capital shareholders. You know, so that company had the opposite of the two you story. And I did it for a very long time. So uh, learned a ton of lessons. The, the company produced a PBS television show that the show did well. It was called Standard Deviance. It was middle school, high school, college courses taught by comedians and actors and a really innovative way to approach content, which certainly relates to what I do today. And eventually we sold that company. And, you know, I sort of joked that we sold it for a bag of magic beans. 
And so I moved on and went back to the senator that I worked for and ran her re-election campaign. I was the deputy campaign manager for a senator's campaign. And then I get recruited into a large educational public company that was focused on K-12 products and services. And they asked me to come in and build an education consumer products business. And instead of building one from scratch, we acquired what was a failing company at the time, but an incredible brand called Hooked on Phonics, which you probably heard of. And I ran that for four years. And then I started to you. And so that's my short version. That's wonderful. So why don't we talk a bit more about to you, specifically the business model and the value prop? Because I think at the time when you were starting the business, the concept of getting a graduate degree online, let alone any sort of degree online that was respected, was fairly unconventional, right? So could you walk the audience through what exactly to you does? So we partner with top universities to build what we think is a proprietary operating system to effectively build, deliver, and support online education at scale. When we started the company, it was entirely focused on degrees. We call it 2UOS. And so it's a combination of great tech and great service bundled together. Uh, and the business model is expressed by revenue sharing with the university over a very long contract. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. But coming back to what we provide, on the degree side, the question is, why should you pick up your life, quit your job, and move to attend a great school? If you could get everything that you were going to get from that campus experience, but not pick up your life and really quit what might be a great job that you're in at the time, you may want to move up or you may want to move ahead, or you may even want to switch careers, but doing it from a place where you're bringing in income is pretty valuable. I think to be fair, John, it's a bit of an understatement to say it was nascent. People thought we were insane. You know, no one was really doing this. You know, there were other companies that existed. I would never act like we were the first company to ever try this, but it certainly was not mainstream. And probably most importantly, the selective schools were not doing any of this. So the internet was sort of left to more non-selective schools or for-profit schools. And we really thought that if we could get the will of the institution to get behind us, that we could do something really powerful. People often ask me today, you know, we're at 3,700 employees and, you know, we've been public five years and that has had certainly some of its own challenges, but it's been an awesome run overall. And People say, well, did you ever expect this? And you, know, you can't go through what we went through in the beginning if you didn't expect it. I've learned the hard way. They all don't work out this way. But we really did believe this was a really big idea. And I fret at times that there's not enough big ideas in ed tech. So, you know, we thought it was a big idea. We really thought this was possible. And it all comes back to that core value prop of how you deliver for the students. So, like, it's kind of a simple business just conceptually. Like, if the student wins, the university wins. If the university wins, to you wins. Now, how we deliver it is complicated, but you know that's kind of the core: is the students got to win out, and if so, the business model allows both the university and to you to succeed. Now, you fast forward, and we went from originally a focus on core degrees, and more recently, over the last three years, we've started to build out shorter courses to allow people to gain skills because not everything is degree relevant. And then most recently, we moved into technical boot camps because reskilling the population is not only a critical need, but also a really big opportunity. So we acquired a company called Trilogy Education that we think sort of brings us into, you know, I, I've started to say in my own head that we're kind of in the fourth inning of 2U now. Like we're getting there. We're not, you know, this isn't a startup anymore. You know, this year, 600 plus million. This is a, you know, it's a rapidly growing, sizable company that we think has the opportunity to be the most important education company in the world. 
And I'm really glad that you mentioned that student first mentality, as I think a lot of ed tech has historically struggled with that alignment, where if you think about the old technical boot camps, they were misaligned in terms of volume of outcomes versus quality of outcomes. And I think we're now seeing the paradigm shift where companies that are instead putting the student first are the ones succeeding in the long term. And 2U has very much so been a pioneer of that paradigm, where by putting the student first, the financial success actually comes as an indirect consequence. So going back to what you had mentioned about how contrarian 2U was back when you first started, I'd love to hone in on how you acquired your first few university partners, because oftentimes I think founders are puzzled by just how difficult higher ed sales cycles can be, just given how slow the industry is to move and because it's so risk averse and there are so many decision makers in every single sale. So could you share any lessons learned in getting those first few institutions to take a bet on you? As I'd actually imagine that quite a bit of that was thanks to the innovation that you were bringing on the business model side. Sure. I would say, I love that question. Like I know we're going to talk pattern recognition later, but I do think that the reality is like ed tech has the need for we can't approach doing good for the world through philanthropy. We have to approach it in the core business itself. You know, we really do have a daily dual bottom line. I know we'll come back to that in pattern recognition because I think the successful ed techs know that up front. You're entirely correct that the business model is a big weapon for the company. It is part of what has separated the company. But if I step back to how we got the first few schools, you know, one of our guiding principles is relationships matter. And I would tell you that you know, that's a huge part of life. I tell my kids who are now, you know, I have a senior and a freshman in high school. And, you know, it's amazing just how circular it all is and how in the end, how you treat people and how you built relationships with people, the number of times it comes back to be relevant. And, you know, fortunately, we had a couple of relationships in those early schools that we were able to get a foot in the door. Now, the foot in the door wouldn't mean you could close it. We had to be really just super passionate, super gritty about how to get it done, both passionate and sort of the drive. And then, you know, sort of showing them the business model and showing them that they were going to take the reputational risk. We're going to take the financial risk. You know, that's non-trivial, but you can argue that the reputational risk is much more profound because, you know, my youngest university partner is 12 years older than Walt Disney. Like these companies don't last this long. And so by removing the financial risk, we could let them focus on quality. And some of the schools really got behind the, at the time, the revenue share model wasn't really as controversial. It's become a little bit more controversial over the years. And we were able to show them from a modeling standpoint that the revenue share would number one, remove their upfront risk. And then number two, allow them without that upfront risk to really receive like a largely equal share of what would be profit to the school, it's not profit, it's surplus. And so if you look at a historical model for 2U, the way you think about it would be that, you know, we invest five to 10 million of net negative cash over the first three to four years of a 10-year contract. It swings the profit for us. You know, then we're in the payback period and then we start making money longer term. The unit economics of the business are actually quite strong. What gets tricky as a public company is the unit economics are not aligned to the current period. So it takes a lot of explaining, which I know as an investor, you know, the more explaining that you're doing, the harder it is to convince somebody. And I would tell you, this goes all the way back to our origination. This has been very timely for me right now with where we are as a public company, because we're in a moment of time where not only are we in some form of transition, but we're also, we're explaining a lot. And, you know, the reality is, 
we were the anti-unicorn in some ways. We today too, you look super obvious, but you know, we raised 102 million in venture capital and our series D post money was $280 million. Like the business model took time to mature and every piece of the stack was harder than we expected. So, you know, I mean, like I have many good friends in the space that I've sort of grown up with. And one of them I'm very proud of is Ryan Smith at Qualtrics, who, you know, took very little venture capital and now has created not only a very large business, but one that generated a very substantial return for him and his family as the founders. You know, ours is a bit more challenged than that. Now, I wouldn't trade it for the world. Like what's ended up happening is wonderful. But the reality is that each of these pieces was harder to do. And I give our original VCs a lot of credit because they also took a risk. And I don't just mean Series A with Redpoint, like Series B with Highland and Series C with Bessemer. They were all very risky for their time. Now, they obviously ended up doing great, but it took time for the model to mature. I know I just covered a lot in that question. So <laughs> no worries. And what I love about the 2U model is that once you've made the upfront investment of building out the program and the infrastructure, you've now locked in these highly cash flow positive 10-year contracts while embedding yourself as integral within the future of your university partners. So you end up building this highly profitable long-term business. And I guess my hope in that is that you've got the right public market investors who can also take that long-term investment horizon. Yeah, you know, it's amazing living the life of a public company CEO, how, you know, one example of, you know, our employees and our board are not only long, they understand strategically where we are and that we're a much more comprehensive solution to our schools. So having uh, Greg Peters from Netflix on my board has been incredibly useful because Chief Product Officer Netflix, you know, very important, NEO and Netflix. And thinking about our business purely through the strategic lens and not through the quarterly pressure is challenging because the public market can be irrational in the short term. And we do have a bunch of longs on our stack, but even the longs, the reality is the cash flow doesn't show up in today's PL the way it does in the sort of vintages of the programs. The vintages of the programs are very cash flow positive and very strong businesses for 2U. And so we have to keep building the future and sort of telling the story of the maturation of the business. And I, I know you're going to ask me some questions about being public. Net-net, I feel like right now, strategically, we are much stronger than we were three or four years ago. You know, three or four years ago, we were kind of cherry-picking programs among a broader universe of potential online programs from each individual school. And what we're trying to do today is really cement ourselves in the fabric of some of these incredible university brands. And that'll become more obvious to the world over the next six months as we release what we're releasing. That's great. And as you think about working with some of the oldest and most storied university partners out there, so the Harvards and the UNCs of the world, not only are you convincing them to take that brand risk, but nowadays you're also convincing some of your partners to create entirely new programs, right? I mean, essentially helping them create bets on their future. So would love if you could shed some light on that process. So the sales process is quite complicated. It is its own complicated version of an enterprise sale. There's no single purchaser. Yeah. The sales cycle is very, very long. I think it's probably double what the typical, we now have a, a, a small but growing enterprise unit and we're excited about that by the way. But what I can see right now is it's probably you know somewhere in the ballpark of double the length of a typical enterprise sale. The tricky thing for 2U is in addition, you have to have both the school level and the university level. You know, you, you got to have both. You can't 
if you have one, you don't have a deal. So quite complicated. You know, our deals are non-trivial for either side. We're investing a lot and they're locking themselves up for a long time. And in doing so, you know, very often we have things that go to the board of trustees, believe it or not. So it's very often it ends up at the board of trustees level. Most of the time, not for approval, but the president might not want to sign until you've got full cover from all angles. So, you know, lesson learned of the early days is we didn't know what a faculty vote was. We just didn't. And some of our deans were more locked into having the faculty vote and others weren't. And the reality is today we really insist on it because it's better for the company, even though it elongates the cycle a bit. It creates both buy-in and even for those that sort of the dissidents, for those that didn't want it, it does at least to put, put everybody on record. And so it creates a better operating construct for us as we go forward. Well, I'm 11 years in, so now I get that. But it wasn't obvious in the early days. They were hard, John. I don't have a, you know, we only did four of them for our first five years of our history also. That would also sort of, today, and we've done so many that, you know, for people that are arriving to you today, they just, it wouldn't even be obvious to those that were here. Like, you know, Andrew Hermelin, who's still with me, was our founding intern and now runs a big swath at 2U. And he runs this part of the process and he knows it intimately. We did it together for a very long time. And he, you know, all we did was really a handful of deals for our first half of our first decade. So today we're doing so many of them. And ultimately, I wish I could give you a true blueprint. What I would tell the founders that are listening is in higher ed, you know, you kind of have to double your capacity to get what you want out of it. There are twists and turns. You will have, you know, I would also say when something goes dark, it's always bad. It's never good. Don't allow yourself to be sort of fooled into your own sort of confidence of what's happening. There's a lot of decision makers. So when things go dark, things go sideways on you, no matter how good you might think your individual relationship is with somebody. And double your sales capacity up front. The training has been something that even real time today, you know, we're trying to scale up that department in a way that I'm sure other enterprise sales leaders have struggled with. You know, ours is a pretty unique sales cycle and sales process. I don't think, you know, think about uh, trying to sell a, a SaaS product to an enterprise and then all of a sudden there's a thing called a faculty vote. You know, it's like a mini political campaign. And by the way, our alma mater, Chapel Hill, Doug Shackelford is one of my favorite lines from that process of our entire 11 years. He called me after the faculty voted, and Doug has approved me doing this in his, uh, he has this incredibly wonderful Southern. Very Southern accent. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's an epic, as you know, it's an epic accent. And he called me and, Chip, I got good news. The faculty voted five to one in favor. I can't get the faculty to vote five to one. The sun's going to come up in the east. And it was, it's a true story. It's amazing. And, you know, we were lucky because they had no data to make the decision. But the notion of this faculty vote, you know, if that had been two to three, no matter what work we had done, deal's done. It's over, you know. And we've had that happen. It doesn't happen a ton, but we've had it happen. So it's an interesting operating environment. You kind of have to, you really have to get them. You have to understand their pain points. You have to be willing to share a lot of information. You know, you're not really just selling them. You're taking them on a journey. And that journey is one of discovery of how to reinvent something they've done really well for a long time. So if you got somebody in just trying to hard close them, 
you know, it doesn't work. I mean, it's not fear of change. It's fear of loss. It's fear of identity loss. They've done something so well for so long. And you're trying to bring a new way of thinking that is very disruptive, even though we're typically associated with sort of disruptive innovation, people would say entirely blow up the university. I don't buy it. I think these universities are so incredible that like disrupting the delivery, disrupting a bunch of parts of the process is revolutionary in and of itself. I totally agree with that. And I think leading with that student first mentality helps that fear of loss subside a little bit more quickly. So then on the operational side of the business, though, what are some key KPIs that you use to gauge the health of the business? You know, retention is kind of the one, I joke that it's like from Lord of the Rings, the one number to rule them all because client retention, first of all, we've not lost a client in our history. So on the degree side, the short courses are more volatile, but on the degree side, you know, we've maintained a hundred percent client retention. I'm sure at some point that'll, you know, we'll have one that we won't work with in the future, but that hasn't happened today. Student retention kind of drives the whole business. It drives the that equation I told you about, the student wins, university wins, two U wins. You know, with these selective programs, if you graduate, you typically have a very positive outcome. So the first job in the barn is to get somebody to graduate. And the reason it's such a powerful KPI is not just that it creates the outcome for the student, but we share tuition revenue as the student takes their classes. You know, students don't pay for the product day one and pay for it up front. They pay as they go. And so if somebody drops out, we lose a lot of money. It's expensive to get a student in. So what's interesting about that is it does create an alignment on the side of doing good for the world with the business model. And I feel like that's underappreciated by a lot of the folks that want to ding us from the outside for being a for-profit education company. So retention overall, it drives the results of the business and it drives the results for students. How they feel about the program does directly impact their likelihood of retention, of graduating. So we track pretty closely all aspects of Net Promoter across a variety of different components of the stack. So how do they feel about their faculty? How do they feel about the tech? How do they feel about their counselor? How do they feel about their student support advisor? All these different pieces that might be tech and service and then overall, what the NPS is for the program. And that's a pretty critical metric. On the business side, we track a variety of things. So we track our LTR-TCA ratio is kind of our CAC metric, you know, from the standpoint of what kind of efficiency we're getting from a marketing perspective is pretty critical. We don't call it CAC because the reality is lifetime revenue in our case is typically a degree. It's not typically, there are some people that do multiple degrees. Now, what we're excited about is the evolution of 2U. And I say the fourth inning is now that we have a much broader product portfolio, we can align our business along the journey of the student from a lifetime perspective. We think that's really powerful, but we're in the earlier days of that. We track a variety of outcomes metrics that we think are really important. We track student debt. We track things like board pass rates. So a lot of our programs... When people think of online ed, they tend to focus on the business programs because most of the discussion of online ed tends to be about business-related topics. Even from some of the MOOCs, people tend to focus on the stuff that's making money. And, you know, like on the MOOC side, they're all trying to convert themselves into a 2U business. And the stuff that's selling is all the business stuff. Interestingly, 2U has a really robust business. More than half of our business 
are in things that typically have a clinical experience of some kind. So most of those end up in licensure, whether it be the doctor of physical therapy, the Yale Physician Assistant Program, the Georgetown Master of Science in Midwifery, these all have boards. And so the board pass rates are pretty critical to those programs. Sorry, so that was a long list. But. No, no, that's really helpful. And I think it's worth highlighting that retention is very much so this umbrella metric that is a trickle down of a bunch of more granular metrics. So the student experience or the content value or the student outcomes. So then as you think about these more granular metrics, can you think of any case studies that to you that have helped drive these metrics and improve the student experience? Yeah, there's a whole bunch of them. So actually, we're quite excited right now that we just became 100% Zoom. I know everybody knows Zoom and I know Eric reasonably well. And you know what they've done as a company is, is fabulous. But Zoom is driving an increase in quality across the business. What's fascinating is we started... Interesting. Yeah, it is. We started with... There were a variety of options for the live environment. But if you back up, one of the things we got right out of the gate... At the time, people thought this was really idiotic, John. Honestly, I use that word. I'm not using that word lightly. Nothing was live in online higher ed. Nothing. And we really came out of the gate believing that live classes were part of what would drive both the quality, the intimacy, the feeling of I'm a tar heel, not just I'm a random you know, one or zero. Like We felt like asynchronous learning was important, but couldn't be the full story. So... We immediately embedded live sessions. And at the time, we used Adobe Connect. And the reason we used Adobe Connect was stability, candidly. Nothing else at the time was stable enough. So we're pretty excited about the rollout of Zoom. It's now fully across the entire portfolio. And so it's, you know, we're excited about that. I mean, there's so many different pieces I can tell you where we improved the student experience. I mean, way back in the day, the internet was not really ready for prime time. And we had to add phone lines to Adobe Connect so that people had a crystal clear audio connection so that when their video blipped, they could still fully participate. So more recently, a variety of interesting components are being added, whether it be AI and machine learning on the front end in marketing or the back end in student support. We're finding there's a lot of runway there. One thing we did for our first data science program, it's pretty cool, is data science, the dean at the data science school is an incredible woman named Anno Saxenian at Berkeley. And she was our first data science program. And they had sub 20% females in their program. And part of the reason was computer science as a field under indexes on a gender basis. And the, the challenge with data science is data science today is not one unified thing. There's a broad spectrum of what people would call data science. Whereas like, if you're getting your MD, you're kind of getting your MD. Some masters in data science are much more managerial. Some are much more technical. Well, as you might imagine with the Berkeley High School, it was hyper-technical, I mean, it was extremely technical. So various parts of CS were prereqs to actually get admitted. And that created an even worse imbalance in the program because by definition, a smaller percentage of women knew Python. So they did something pretty brilliant with us. She created a bridge course with us for Python specifically, because we were getting all these great candidates that had good scores and great backgrounds and good work experience, but didn't know the tech. And by doing so, it's radically improved the percent of women in the program, going from like sub 20 to mid 30s. 
And we feel like that's a place where we can really run. So that was both an improvement in the student experience, but also an improvement in the marketing funnel and an improvement in the social outcomes. So that's the kind of thing I want to see across the business. I really love that alignment of good for the world and good for business, which I think we're now in an era where that's not only possible, but I think hopefully for the future is also mandatory. And that also makes me curious, though, as we think about this shifting landscape around higher ed, are there any key trends, whether those be the shift to mobile or technical boot camps that to you is responding to and really affecting? Okay, so I would say first that sustainability is not optional. And I think one of the hard things for ed tech is that there are a lot of features and not enough companies. People tackling big problems where you're, there's plenty of problems. And it's odd if you look at education overall, if you look at the percent of GDP consumed by education and you compare it to other large sectors, it's right up there with like retail, you know, it's massive. And then what's odd is if you look at the top 10 sectors and you look at the largest companies by market cap, there are these massive, massive companies. I mean, you, you, you can name them all, Apple, Amazon, you're the number one in each of their categories. And then you get to education and the number one is like 8 billion at Pearson. And it, it's now non-China, put aside China for a second. But so I think there's a reason, like figuring out how to do it, number one is in a sustainable fashion. Number two, doing it within the construct of the operating environment is very difficult. We talked a little bit about that in this podcast. So I feel like we're, I do think where a lot of entrepreneurs get it wrong is, you know, it's easy to walk in and just talk about disrupting everything. But at the end of the day, you've got to create a sustainable long-term business and you've got to do it on both. Like the dual bottom line in ed tech, it's really tough. You know, we take, two you takes a lot of hits every day for being a for-profit business. We do. Yep. Inherently, there's some portion of the sort of world that inherently just struggles with the notion of something making money in education, but doesn't struggle with something making money in other large regulated sectors, whether it be healthcare or energy or defense. You know, you take some of those sectors, the percentage of fuel being supplied by the federal government is much higher. So we have that burden every day, and it requires a focus on both, you know, sort of doing well by doing good and creating something sustainable. So I feel like more and more. We're trying to get the rest of EdTech to focus on not just the quality of outcome, but also the investment it took to get the outcome. And I feel like venture capital could really help us there. Like there are conferences we go to where I actually feel like the conference should be much more focused on the inputs because as part of your business model, for instance, that's a big part of it is you're driving a capital footprint to try to drive a long-term outcome. And I don't think there's enough focus on it. I really don't. In ed tech, you know, you got to have big, ambitious, hairy goals, and you've got to drive the funding mechanism to get there, and you've got to do it in a sustainable fashion. So, you know, I'm proud that we're creating a business that has really good margins in our older programs. I'm not upset about it. I'm not embarrassed about it. I'm proud about it. And I should be, because we're creating something that on some level, if you could bottle you've got the ability to apply it to all these different parts of a much more needy educational system. I happen to be focused on what I'm focused on, and I have a lot to do in my space. But I feel like there really should be a broader conversation about these things. Now, I mentioned earlier, machine learning, my data science team gets opinionated about AI because they believe 
that most of what we're actually doing in the world is not AI, it's actually machine learning. And therefore, you know, just how much is said with the buzzwords AI or framed around the buzzwords AI versus machine learning. But putting that aside, we are deploying, I think, some really brilliant machine learning across the business in a way that I think long-term is material enough that we are not only working on short courses for AI, but larger forms of education. You know, blockchain, we feel like is fundamental, but not as big as AI from a subject area standpoint. Like AI is big enough that you will see a lot of product offerings from 2U. That's how much we believe in it. And we are seeing it make an impact inside the company. I just had this really cool piece of data that came to me on Friday where this AI chatbot we were using to engage prospects that had gone dark produced four enrolled students in one of our programs. And while a small indicator, game-changing because the problem with that part of the funnel is that we put a lot of money into somebody that might now be disengaged. And if you're able to drive small increments of improvement, it has a long-term impact across the business if done correctly. So that was a very real-time data point I literally got on Friday, like I told you about very young, if you saw that email, I was very excited about it. And then I did a call because like that's applicable across the business in a way. And it was a surprising result. And we definitively had a study in the control group. We had, so I love that. But I don't want to babble on. I'm giving you a lot here. Our, what's interesting, John, is our business. One of the things that I think is underappreciated about to you is to copy us. You got to do a lot well. You know, we've done a lot over the years to build the stack. And I'm a big believer that the value we provide our clients in some ways is the comprehensive nature. There's a lot of people right now that want to pick apart the pieces and that's how they want to compete against us. And I actually love it when I see that because I actually think they don't fully appreciate the strategic moat that's around the business that comes from this solution that we provide the clients where we're figuring out not just the pieces, but the touch points between the pieces. So then boiling that down to pattern recognition, which is the title of the podcast, I think the main pattern you're alluding to is building a platform, right? Not just a point solution that helps a single department with a single function, but a platform that's underpinned with strong unit economics and then has ML and AI layered onto it or whatever buzzword you want to use in order to drive sustainable differentiation. So then in terms of other patterns you've noticed across successful businesses, I'm curious about your answers around public companies. Specifically, I recently had Stefan Casriel, the CEO of Upwork on, and he talked about his first few quarters as a public CEO. But curious for you, having seen many years now in the tumultuous public markets, what are some consistent patterns you see across the most successful public stocks? So Stefan is a good friend, by the way. That's great. He and I uh, spent a fair amount of time at a founders conference over the years that we love and uh, enjoyed both uh, Dublin and Lisbon together. So he's awesome. Very proud of the work they're doing. So I love seeing my friends succeed. Uh, look, being a public company, you know, we're not, we're not new. You know, we're five years in and we certainly didn't have the debut of a Slack or an Uber or any of the, you know, I sort of laugh when people talk about the sort of new radical approaches to IPOs and how it's going to take over the world. The reality is most companies don't have the option Spotify had. We needed the marketing period. We needed the bankers. We needed the, we needed the process. So five years in, you know, I can tell you it's, I learn every day, you know, it's really, really critical that you take the long road 
And it's really easy to convince yourself as a public CEO that you are, but you got to really look in the mirror and be honest with yourself that you are. It's very tempting to do things like give long range guides. And the reality is it's not a smart thing to do. So you do have to be aware of your audience. You of course have to be aware of your quarters. You don't have a choice, but you got to make sure that you're framing it long-term strategically for the business. I would also tell you that one of the things I, I sort of joke with my VC backers is the notion that just tell everybody to ignore the stock price. It's not realistic. It's a bit disingenuous. It's the first thing on everybody's phone. So you have to walk the line of addressing it to address the elephant in the room when something is happening, but not over addressing it and therefore having your company be in any way too focused on it. But I think ignoring it is not the right call. Over the five years, I've had moments where I've had to pull myself back because as CEO, you're kind of one of the few number of people that are living it. I would also say if you're in the process of going public and A, you really aren't long as a CEO. And by the way, there's no judgment in that. I would say I've been doing this. I'm about to get to my 12th year. You know, I started it with a small crew. I IPO'd it. And here we are 3,700 employees later. I'm still here. I still have the energy for it. But I know many friends who have left their various companies, and there's not only no shame in that, they should be proud of what they accomplished and what they did. If you're not interested in being with the company long-term, or if you don't believe that you want to deal with the pressure of telling the story continuously, you should sell. And there's not only no shame in that, it's perfectly appropriate for what you've done. you know. And there'll be somebody else that'll take it on with energy and run with it for the next part of the journey. I feel like too many people step into it and maybe don't fully appreciate. It is somewhat all-consuming. You know, in, in my life right now, pretty simple guy. I have my family to you and the Miami Dolphins. Uh, that's about all that I have the aperture for. <laughs> or it's a being public. It's no joke. You know, it's uh, it's intense. Now at the same time, we've raised nine hundred million dollars. You know, in total, like it's the access to the capital markets is unparalleled. So, you know, if, if you're Spotify, maybe you don't have to worry about it as much. But if you're, or Uber. Now, I even feel like, in, you know, now it's interesting to watch all these companies that raise sort of unlimited venture capital going public. And I do think maybe, you know, we're starting to see that being public makes more sense than not. You kind of got to grow up at some point. <laughs> Completely agreed. And just for context for the audience, we're recording this in a conference room with Dolphins gear plastered all over the walls. So... <laughs> Unfortunately, not been a great. My two boys are 17 and 14, uh, senior and freshman in high school. And, you know, they're equally passionate about my Miami Dolphins. And unfortunately, they have not experienced any fun. No, they haven't. It really speaks towards your loyalty. So last question here, Chip, which is what are any mental models or personal patterns you use in your own decision making? You know, I would say culture is tantamount. Culture is really what drives the company. You can only process yourself so far learning how to how to impact the culture and affect the culture at our size today is even a lesson learned for me but it's so critical manicure it you know work it treasure it be thoughtful about what it is i would argue that the culture at the company is kind of like when my kids were little you could go to the bowling alley and you know if they were two you could go to the bowling or three you go to the bowling alley and push a button and the bumpers come up and everybody has a great time because there's no gutter balls and i feel like the culture at the company can be those guardrails in a really material way. I guess the second thing I would say is hire people that brighten the room. You know, it's all about bringing great people into the organization, letting them thrive. 
right now I'm pretty obsessed with the construct that I got from Greg Peters from Netflix of at our size and our scale, my challenge right now is sort of demoting the authority and really pushing down decision-making and leadership into the org. You know, it can't come from the top five people. It needs to come from a much broader construct of folks and increasing the risk tolerance for those folks as we grow that are, you know, in the top 500 people instead of the top five people. And then finally, I would say my personal sort of in a mission-driven organization, the people matter so much. And one of the stories that I tell is I met this individual at one point in my history who had had a massive heart attack and he struck me as this really lovely person and I didn't know he had had a heart attack and I was in a conversation with him and really just struck me as like a guy that I really quite loved and was struck by him and he said to me, I said, wow, you're really incredible. And he said to me, every day is a holiday, every meal is a feast. And I, I looked at him and I'm like, what did you just say? And he said, every day is a holiday, every meal is a feast. I had a massive heart attack and I woke up in the hospital and all I could do was count the ceiling tiles you know, don't wait until you're counting the ceiling tiles to process how important that is. And so I've tried to make that a very personal goal every day. And I think if you can get that across to not just your employees in your own personal life, it's hard to do. And it sounds like a bumper sticker, but my God, it's true. You're a much better human being and the people around you will be much more thoughtful and fun. And life is short. We're not perfect and we screw up at times, but I do think it's a mental model that I think can have huge value at every stage of your company's life. You know, at the startup stage, which, you know, I'm very familiar with. Now we're obviously big, but my God, the twists and turns you will take on the journey as a founder, execution through the maze of choices you have, it's all going to be about the people you put around you. So every day is a holiday, every meal is a feast would be my the way I would leave you. I absolutely love that. And just making the space and time to find gratitude and filling yourself with it actually permeates through the other two insights you had there around not only building a positive and welcoming culture, but also hiring talent that is aligned on that same mentality. But Chip, this has been a wonderful interview and I appreciate you taking the time. Great to be with you. Cheers. Once again, a big thank you to Chip for joining us today. To you has been a true pioneer for student outcomes and higher ed innovation. So it's wonderful to watch the team succeed in building a long-term business. We've got a whole host of similar guests joining the show who are looking to change the world for the better, many of whom I've highlighted on my Twitter in order to get your questions so that I can give you a shout out during those interviews. You can tweet at me at John Heasy. That's J-O-H-N-H-E-E-Z-Y. So thank you all for tuning in and I'll talk to you next week. Bye.